You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and I would love to see you there. But to our show today, and I've wanted to have this guest on the show for a long time, being part of a rocket ship as early as this guest was is such a unique experience, and we had a blast unpacking that journey today. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Karen Page, general partner at B Capital, with a portfolio including the likes of Bird, Branch, Fishbrain, Holler, and Machine Max, to name a few. Prior to joining the World of Venture, Karen was a senior director at Apple, and before Apple, Karen's spent an incredible nine years at Box, where she was responsible for defining and leading Box's industry GTM strategy. Plus, from 2007 until 2013, Karen ran all of Box's business development, partnership, and strategic alliance activities. If that wasn't enough, Karen's also on the board of some incredible companies, including Deputy and Plastic. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Aaron Levy at Box and Howard Morgan for the fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Cordoba, the leader leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing for content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. And you can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash sasta that's cordoba with a q writing is one way to attract new customers but another way to increase conversion is to collect and display reviews from your past customers that's where reviews.io come in reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers but it also is able to help you publish these reviews on google and on your social media platform of choice reviews.io is a fully api driven solution that can be fully customized around your company's requirements reviews.io is packed full of useful features but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, just to name a few. And as a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code Harry, H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired these customers, that's just the beginning. That's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles, and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit Zoho CRM forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds and you start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page, you'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM. But that's quite enough from me, so now I'm delighted to hand over to our fantastic guest today, Karen Page, general partner at B Capital. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Karen, what can I say? I've wanted to do this one for a long time, having heard so many good things, both from Aaron at Box and then also Howard Morgan. So thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Not at all, but I, I do want to kick off with a little bit of you and your story into venture, because it's a weird and it's a, it's a wonderful world. But how did you make your way into the world of startups? And how did that lead to today being a partner at B Capital? I started my career in sales and marketing. I was living in Honolulu and I was working for LexisNexis and had the opportunity to 
to move to Silicon Valley. And I really had no idea what I was getting into. But when I moved here, I immediately was bitten by the bug that so many people get bitten by here and knew that I was destined to be in the world of startups and had the opportunity. You know, my first startup experience was at Prosper. We had an incredible founder in Chris Larson, unbelievable market opportunity. I came on board as a VP responsible for building the community. We had Jim Breyer on the board and Bob Cagle on the board. So I was really thrown into quite an incredible opportunity. But, you know, I really feel like my journey started at Box. You know, Box was where I learned to lean into the unknown and to take a significant risk. And when I joined, you know, the founding team, 50% of them were not yet 21. (laughs) So it was quite a young organization. We had raised a million dollars. That at the time was considered an A round, which we have seen, you know, that kind of evolved significantly since that time. And we really had no revenue to speak of by the time that I had joined. You know, there was an incredible market opportunity and a lot of potential no revenue and not a lot of money in the bank. Uh, you know, I was a single mom with two young kids at home, financially responsible for my family. And, you know, honestly, going to box was was one of the crazier things I've ever done. I absolutely love that in terms of kind of the risk-taking mindset. Can I ask, how did that then transition over the years into investing and, and now B Capital and VC? I took a lot of time in understanding what the opportunity was at box. I spent time with the original investor, Josh Stein from DFJ, and he's the one that gave me kind of confidence to jump in. We immediately pivoted from a consumer company to a B2B company. And I was also worked with Aaron quite closely on raising the B round of funding, which was my first exposure to pitching and seeing how the venture community took on entrepreneurs and their thinking and the questions that they asked and the way in which the opportunities were evaluated and considered. And you can see when you're talking to dozens of different VC firms at any given time, you can see how their mindset goes, what's important to them. And often they were very different as we talked to various firms. Luckily, we were able to connect with Mamoon Hamid at USVP at the time. And we're so lucky to be able to work with someone who was young in their career, but very committed to our growth. But that for me was an incredible opportunity to see how the venture community actually went to work. And again, you know, thinking through how you get the bug of working for a startup, I knew in my mind at that point that I was going to be in the venture community at some point in my career. I think there's a lot of serendipity that comes with intention. So my intention was to be in venture and serendipity led me there over the years. No, I I totally agree with the serendipitous nature. I I guess the really interesting question for me is now as an institutional investor, you had invested as an angel before and it's it's a transition that I, I have been going through and I'm still going through now. And it's how did your investing mindset change with the shift from angel to institutional. And we had, you know, Josh Koppelman and Andy McLaughlin on, and they both said that actually they became more conservative. How did your mindset shift in terms of that investment mindset? I agree in theory with that, because as you're writing your angel checks, you know that they may very well go up in flames. And that's the mindset that you come into it with. When you're writing a check to a company at the seed stage, you know that the likelihood that that is going to fail is great. You still go into it with the hopeful expectation that it will be a success. But when you start thinking about it from the institutional perspective, you've got other folks that you are responsible to. You've got an LP base and you know that your future success is tied to their ability to extract 
success from the portfolio that you're building. So certainly there is going to be some mindset around making sure that the companies that you're investing in are going to be successful in the long run. So that is a very big change. But I think no matter the stage, there's going to be risk. And the nature of the beast when it comes to investing is that your risk is going to evolve with the growth of the company. Early stage, there's going to be demand risk and product market fit risk. But later, the risk is about the ability to scale. And so when you when I think about it from an institutional perspective, investing at the growth stage, some of the risk has already been considered and hopefully worked through. Not all of it, of course. The risks at the growth stage are going to be about you know, how can you scale? What is the ability of the company to continue to build an incredible team? Can the founder attract talent? What's their passion level and how do they share that vision? And then how are they going to scale with this new inflection of capital? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you in terms of those differing risk profiles at different stages. When we chatted before, though, you said something really interesting, and I, I loved it, but you said invest in people, not pitches. And you definitely did that in terms of your time with 50% of the team at Box being uh, below the age of 21. So how can I not dig in on this kind of people first approach? What did you mean by the invest in people, not pitches? And how does that maybe influence your investment decision making? Yeah, the pitch is just one aspect of it. Even if you're in love with a business idea, you need to get under the hood with a founding team team. How are they thinking about growing the company and the leadership team? And how do they face tough challenges and navigate obstacles? Are they adding diverse talent that complements their own strengths and weaknesses? And founders cannot be all things to all people. They can't be amazing at everything and that's okay. But getting to know them as people and how do they take guidance and support and how are they going to handle the challenges of navigating this growth? They're all as important to us as the actual pitch might be. The pitch is important. It's the presentation of an idea in a short amount of time and a chance to answer the important question. Does this idea have legs? Are we solving a critical real world problem? And do they understand the addressable market? But we really want to know the people. We know that innovation can come from anywhere. We want people who are going to be able to survive the challenges of growth. I'm so aligned to this kind of people first approach. My challenge today is funding timelines are so compressed given the excess capital supply that you don't have the time that you once had to really dig in in a lot of cases with rounds going three to 10 days in many cases. How do you find the people first approach fitting in such a round compressed time framed ecosystem? You've hit the nail on the head. The time compression makes it super challenging. I mean, you can't get to know someone in the way that you will over time in two days. It just doesn't work that way. So ideally, we've begun to work with the companies that we have spotted that match the framework that we've outlined or the theses that we've set up. So we try to get to know people in advance of their funding rounds. Of course, that doesn't always happen. So when we are faced with a compressed period of time and need to get to know the teams in a speedy way, we do have a framework, a people framework. So we start to pattern match against what we've seen be successful in the past. And we look through a criteria list that we have managed on our team to say just basic things. How does this leadership team gel? How do they work together? What are we seeing as their strengths? How have we seen them communicate together? What can we learn from how they are approaching the challenges that they're facing? What do we think will happen when there's a conflict around direction of product or how the the customer service team is going to deal with companies that aren't renewing as planned. You know, we want to understand the thinking, the thought process
process of these teams. So while it's not ideal to have to do this in a compressed way, we do think that we are formulaic in our approach and take the time required to understand the dynamics of the people. I'm really interested. You said that about really getting to know them pre-fundraise and that totally with you there. And that's the ideal situation. For that to happen, founders have to be open to discussing and meeting investors when they're not raising. We often hear today, you know, only meet investors, sorry, when you're actually raising. Others say, you know, you should always be raising. What advice do you have for founders in terms of always raising versus that kind of more disciplined head down on product and growth? I, of course, as being on the venture side, like the idea of always be raising. It creates various opportunities. And I think for us, we hope that founders are open to that perspective. We also think that, you know, we are a very young firm. We aren't as well known as some of the others in our business. And for that, we like to take advantage of some of the surprising differentiators that we have with founders and often find that if we can meet them in advance, they actually are super interested in the BCG partnership and the ecosystem that we can build. And so it does give us a leg up if we can meet outside of the very compressed time of, you know, a dozen term sheets sitting on the table. Totally with you in terms of that kind of competitive landscape. We spoke about kind of your involvement in the box fundraising in in many cases, and Aaron mentioned it and kind of your instrumental help. I guess if we switch class though to kind of the founder perspective, he asked specifically, how should founders think about early stage investors? And what advice would you give founders when it comes to that crucial investor selection? Absolutely. At each stage of growth, look for the investors who know how to add the most value for where your company is going next. A lot of the success an investor can offer to an early stage company is their network. You know, who can we introduce you to? Who is going to be pivotal to you in your very early stages? And so that's what is super important and critical at that very early stage. In fact, in my angel experience, many of the founders have wanted me to come aboard because of my experiences, my knowledge, my network, the people that I could introduce them to, and the strategic advice that I'd be willing to offer them. As a company grows, it's much more about what can be offered by that investor in terms of the strategy, the capabilities, and the individual and collective experiences of that investing team. And of course, for us, one of those huge differentiators is the strategic capabilities of the BCG partnership that we bring to the table. Totally. I, I see that. When you look at your strategic experiences and insight, where do you find the ideal insertion point is for you? Is it in that kind of pre-product market fit phase? Is it in that scale-up phase? How do you think about where maybe your strategic insight is most impactful? So the growth round is the first time that founders receive a huge inflection of capital. And it requires an immediate shift in approach from testing and iterating and learning how to sell and build out processes and teams to suddenly being expected to scale very rapidly and with a faster cadence, navigating pricing models, entering new markets. And as a founder, the capital is the fuel to grow, but it doesn't come with a formula. And what we see is that it's just fraught with challenges. And we often experience as CEOs across the ecosystem facing the same types of problems. And we like to be there for them as they grow through them. And we can be an assistant to that growth. They're not alone. You know, it's it's very interesting to me. You see CEOs who are navigating a problem and they feel like they are the only one. This is the only time that this has ever happened. And we can come in with the playbook. You know, we can just say like, of course, you know, we've, we've seen other people who have hired a first time VP of sales that didn't work out. And here's what we think we can learn from this experience and we can move on quickly from it. So we just like to compress the time frame against the solution to some of the problems that are very standard 
occurred in the growth phases. We mentioned the intense scale-up phase there. The big question that I often have for other investors is how do you know when to really pour fuel on the fire? And they say, ah, it's when the unit economics all play out and we can really see the scale-up story. But then there's a lot of other cases where it could be in traditional enterprise sales where actually sales cycles are just much longer, where sales rep productivities may be slightly more challenging to predict in the early days or in marketplaces where actually you have to project your mindset out many years, three to five years to really see those unit economics. How do you think about when's the right time to really pour fuel on the fire? I think part of it is understanding the formulaic approach to go to market. If you haven't yet determined what the markers are, what the sales cycles look like, and how to get through a sales cycle more quickly, then you might not be ready. That might be a good time to continue to A-B test your go-to-market approaches. What's working for you? Where are your customers coming from? But once you have a decent idea of where people are coming in, what markets are best suited to immediate attraction and immediate adoption, then you are ready to add fuel to that fire. Let's find those markets where adoption looks pretty quick. And also, let's learn to use the existing customers that have come in. How can we leverage their networks? We know that every CIO in the business is talking to every other CIO in the business. How can we begin to have people talk on our behalf? How can we begin to build networks where the products that you're selling becomes part of the conversation? Totally agree with you in terms of the product being central there. You mentioned the CIOs there. I often have the thinking that if it's not a top one, two, or three buy for the CIO, it's going to be a challenge to really get efficient sales cycles and see that kind of sales velocity within the funnel. Is that too short-sighted of me now, given the wide variety of vendors and software that CIOs have to really engage with? Or do you still maintain that actually, unless it's a core, it is challenging to really get excited, especially from an investment perspective? I think that we're seeing a time, of course, when CIOs and CISOs are up to their eyeballs with new technologies and just trying to keep up for their own companies to make sure that they are seeing the products and the services that are going to best solve their company's problems. We know that that's a case. They are get they are overloaded today. However, I do think there's room to have a conversation with them when your product is in that bucket. You know, if a transformational product that's going to make a difference, you're going to be able to get in front of CIOs that matter. And that's the key is figuring out what the entry point is, what the conversation looks like. And it may require creativity. It may require you camping out at a conference when that CIO is speaking. But the ability to get in front, I think, is also testament to the network and the community that you bring in from you know, your investing team. Once I'm so sorry for going so off schedule, but I'm too intrigued. Once you do get in front of them, often people say about the importance of really selling the long-term vision of kind of the product roadmap itself and how that really plays into how they think about the partnership. How true is that versus actually the product today, what it can deliver for them on an ROI basis on day of implementation? How do you balance between that immediate product ROI versus vision? And is the vision really important, do you think, in terms of really seeing that conversion? So you want to paint the vision and share with them the compelling differentiators that your product offers. That goes without saying. It's an art to be able to do that because they are inundated. However, there are other aspects to attracting the interest of the CIO in terms of the community that they play in. One thing that we worked on very hard at Box was building a community of CIOs that gave you the right to access them. So we would bring them together, share important ideas, not only only about box, but about tangential software solutions that they were interested in. And we'd build a community around it. I love that in terms of the community building aspect. We see events being, and again, I'm sorry for the schedule going out of the window, but I'm too intrigued. You mentioned the community building and the events. Events is becoming more and more popular as a 
marketing strategy as a community building strategy. How do you think about events today when you see it within your portfolio? Do you think they're being underutilized, overutilized? How do you think about it, especially as a conversion? Depends on the stage of the company and the type of event that they're trying to hold. I really believe in the power of events. And I also know that they are far harder to execute successfully than you would imagine on the face of it. It takes a lot of strategic thought and a lot of work to get the right ideas on the table to attract the right people to attend and then to put on an event that people are going to talk about after they leave, which is the key. And then I think you need to merchandise it. You need to not just stop at the event. You need to figure out what other angles can you push on? Do you need to follow that up with a Medium article? Do you need to have one event that's focused on the deployment managers and then one that's focused on the CIOs or CEOs? How do you bring it all together? So it's not just a one-off event, but rather a very well thought through way for the company to have a voice and to create a vision. I think a lot of people struggle with events in terms of the ROI and really tracing that back to revenue directly. It's often the case with marketing. And it's a big question that I have, which is kind of marketing's measurement of success. And I had a VP of marketing on the show the other day that said, that you always have to tie the core number back to revenue in terms of determining the success of marketing. Do you believe that's the case? Or do you believe there are alternatives, be it brand impact, be it brand weight in market, that actually can be equally weighed? How do you think about directly tying that measurement back to revenue? So I really strongly believe in the notion of credibility, awareness, and revenue as being the drivers of these strategic marketing slash BD efforts. Sometimes you do an event and the only thing you want to do is leave your attendees with the idea that you are a credible solution. You're a credible business. Other times it's broad. You want to create awareness. And at the end of the day, all of these things should feed back into revenue. Some efforts are entirely revenue driven. That is more rare. Generally, the larger picture idea is how do we create credibility and awareness for our business that lead to revenue over time? Totally agree with you, especially as also in being patient with that revenue over time. I often see people expecting ROI to be relatively immediate. And I think people forget about the long-term nature of ROI. I do want to touch on the element that we kind of touched on earlier being kind of that CIO conversation and building partnerships for startups because I spoke to Aaron a lot about this actually and and he asked specifically fundamentally what makes a great partnership for a startup and what are the core questions they should ask pre-partnership? Aspirationally at Box we always targeted our dream partners and systematically and relentlessly worked to find an in. Responsively we fielded requests to integrate and so on but always we were looking for companies where we saw long-term benefits, mutually beneficial outcomes and committed and aggressive teams to execute on the deals. We all know the work starts after the ink hits the paper. So we wanted partners who rolled up their sleeves with us to go big. And we always said yes until we had to say no. Yeah, I love that tenacity and hustle. I had someone on the show the other day who said about the dangers of signing too big a partner too early in the company life. It's often thought of as incredible and you know a huge achievement when you sign one of those behemoth clients, but they were concerned about the dangers of it. How do you think about this? And do you think that's a natural and right concern to have? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the idea of the deal gets lost in translation. I've frequently advocated to founders the dangers of overreach in this way. Getting a deal done is not too hard, but making a deal work is very, very 
very hard. In most cases, you have to put your product and your philosophies in the hands of another team. You know, you're enabling them to sell your product and that's tough. And you're expecting them to sell on your behalf. It's time consuming and requires tons of planning, a lot of training, traveling extensively, monitoring the deals and so much more. It really takes a lot of people to put that into action. So think very hard about what success post-deal will require. In terms of that importance of post-deal and kind of the integration element and taking that with the element you said earlier about people centricity, I really struggle with the segmented SaaS companies that we see being built today because you build a relationship with maybe a sales rep and then you get passed off to someone else just as you make that commitment and you have to build a new relationship with someone who you maybe don't have that innate relationship and trust with. Do you see what I'm saying here? And do you think that's a worthy concern into the questionable nature of kind of the segmented teams? Yeah, well, as it relates to a business development or a partnership team. I think there are hunters and there are farmers. And you know, hunters never like to give up their deal even after the deal's signed. They want to stay involved. And the hunters are ready to dig in and they do all of the highly actionable, even sometimes transactional types of work. You know, what are the list of 50 to 100 things that we're going to look at across every new partner that comes in? Do we want to be part of their sales kickoff? Are they doing annual events that we can integrate into? What should we co-sponsor? What should we co right? What types of product marketing pieces do we need to generate and create? That is not what a hunter does and a farmer excels there. So internally, we know that that has to be the way that the deal moves forward. From an external perspective, it's how early and how soon and how systematically can we make sure that those teams, because the same thing's happening on the other side, they are going to have hunters and farmers as well. And you have to make sure that those people get to know each other as quickly as possible. And we're looking for synergies there. We're looking for cohesiveness. We're also looking for the right person on the other side to lead the deal because it will not work if you've got a lower level managerial person who is going to operate off of a checklist and not be able to operate from a strategic perspective. So it's a matching effort as well from company to company. Totally agree with that. You mentioned the element of speed there. In terms of timing, Aaron specifically from Boxos, when should startups focus on BD and partnerships? And where do you see many going wrong having seen it firsthand at Box, but also kind of pattern matching stay as an investor? There are so many ways that this can go off the rails. We believed at Box that it was an important, very early approach to have a partnership strategy. I was employee seven and you know that was my role was to figure out how Box could navigate and use as leverage other companies. Many were large. Some we built as an ecosystem model that were just like us going in and trying to build their business that you know we felt were tangential to the way that we were building our business. But it depends on the type of company that you have. And it's also very dependent on the executive team commitment to building out a partnership strategy. If you don't believe it's important, then no one on the, in the team, no one in the company is going to be successful at navigating and building that because you need everyone pulling on all cylinders. You bring in a deal, it's going to require engineering, product, sales, marketing. It's going to require everyone to be committed to making it successful. So without that level of commitment, partnership strategies won't work. But again, you know, I think that the earlier that you bring in and you think through what your go-to-market approach is, what you're going to need to be successful will point to the need for a partnership strategy. So just understanding that and communicating that will point out, I believe, and highlight to you when it's time. Most of the time, it's pretty early. 
Yeah, no, I do agree with you. And I think you're absolutely right. I think many people consider it too late. We've spoken a lot about your time with Box and Aaron. I do have to ask one final thing from Aaron. I've got to give him so much credit for basically constructing the schedule here. What a hero. <laughs> he, he asked specifically, and I, I love stories. So what's your most memorable story from the early days of Box and working with Aaron? What sticks out to you? What's the story I can't this tell? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, honestly, I have so many amazing stories from my time with Aaron at Box hilarious stories. And we should certainly circle back to some of these. But from a pivotal aspect for me running business development, it was our first significant deal. The deal came about surprisingly due to a critical weakness in a new product Dell was coming out with. It was in 2008 and it was when the little mini computers were the rage and they were about to launch theirs and realized that all of the competitors had a lot more storage on board those devices and theirs had two gigs and they were sort of freaking out. Because I had spent so much time and so much effort in my relentless effort to meet every senior business leader at Dell from their various GMs and their innovation teams, they knew us. And so it was pretty shocking. I think we had maybe 15 employees at the time, but Dell came to us as they were looking to satisfy their competitive need. And we were able to hammer out a deal that was pretty transformational at the time. We became the the cloud solution to extend the storage capacity on these mini devices. And I remember calling Aaron, I was at a conference and telling him on the phone that we won the Dell deal and it was crazy. We were both in shock. We felt like it was just an incredibly huge opportunity for us to build momentum. And when that deal was announced, we had well over over 100 newspaper articles from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal and everywhere else in between. And it was an incredible credibility and awareness builder. And we had a ton of inbound SMB and enterprise action as a result. And so I feel like that was a pretty pivotal deal for us at the time. And it is one of the PG stories that I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, that is one hell of a needle moving deal. So that's uh, awesome to hear. I I do want to finish the count on my favorite, which is the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to rock and roll? Always ready to rock and roll. Okay. So favorite book and why? Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, because it's an incredible example that it's never too late for people to try something totally new. She was a 70-year-old zoologist when the book was published, and she worked on the book for a decade, and it came out to zero critical acclaim. But then the book broke every algorithm. It didn't fit templates, and it shocked the publisher. It was reprinted over 40 times. So it really defies history and precedent, and it's a breakout winner. And to me, the story is a magical, fascinating, gut-wrenching, and it's filled with twists incredibly hard one to ask. Who's the best board member you've sat on a board with and what made them so special? You know, I love Dan Demmer at OpenView. He is calm, cool, and collected with incredible enterprise experience. Always the voice of reason. He's a really strong coach. He's a leader and he also knows when to let the management team sort it out. So I think his approach is thorough, but not suffocating and lets his founders lead. What's the single toughest and best thing about your role with B? today? I love so many things about B Capital, but what I love the most is we're a startup. So I get to do all of the things from an internal team perspective that I love. And externally, I am able to really help drive our vision, our market presence, and really help to define who we are as we move forward with our second fund. And it has been an 
absolute joy and incredible experience for me. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you wrote your first angel check? I love this one. What I wish I knew then was that this is a community. And just as in Silicon Valley, people are always willing to help each other, people in the investment community have been unbelievable. And I wish I had known that it was okay to call a friend and say, what do you think about this space? What do you think about this business? I think it is an incredible testament to the strength of the Valley that people here are willing to share ideas, discuss angles, discuss people. And there are so many people who are ready to sit down and talk with you anytime. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Having done 3,000 interviews and 1,000 when pretty much no one had ever listened to the show, I, I totally agree with you there. Tell me, the biggest inflection point in your life and how did it change your thinking? This was a tough one for me. I feel like I have reinvented myself over the course of decades many times. I honestly think it was meeting my husband. If you can imagine you know, how transformational that is after having been single for a long time and finding someone who was an equal partner and someone who supported me in every single way possible. He has been a, you know, investment banker, a startup CFO, a startup CEO, and we've walked along the same path in many different ways. But having someone you can count on for solid advice 24-7 has been an incredible strength to me and has given me a really solid foundation to launch into this new direction for my own career. Well, I'm eternally single, so I'm hoping that inflection points to come in my life. Fingers crossed. Well, let's, let's talk about that. I'm sure. I'm sure my network can help you. Oh, listen, I'm all ears. Uh, after the show, <laughs> let's finish on your most recent publicly announced investment. And why did you say yes and get so excited? Well, my most recent publicly announced investment hasn't actually been yet publicly announced, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. It's a D-stage investment in fintech based in San Francisco uh, with an incredible market opportunity, differentiated way for SMBs to finance their business in the short and long term. And we are are super, super excited. I absolutely adore the founder. I love the team. And we think they are really poised for some significant growth in the next year. So stay tuned. That will be announced in the upcoming months, along with a few other deals that they wanted to put forward. I cannot wait to see the announcement. As I said, Karen, I've wanted to see this one for a long time, having had so many good things. But thank you so much for joining me today. And I've absolutely loved it. I have loved it too. Thank you so much. My word, I just loved having Karen on the show there and such exciting times ahead for her with B Capital. And if you'd like to see more from us, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing for content. For SASTA listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan, and you can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash SASTA. That's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way to attract new customers, but another way to increase conversion is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it also 
also is able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company's requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Open Door, and Carfax, just to name a few. And as a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code Harry, H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired these customers. That's just the beginning. That's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit Zoho CRM forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds and you start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.